You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. Uh, It's good to be back up here with you all as we're picking back up into our Ephesians series, which took a little bit of a a break uh, during the Advent season. Uh, We started this series back in the fall, and we're kind of re-engaging with our series uh, through the uh, letter to the Ephesians that Paul writes. And and as we've been saying uh, week after week as we were studying this in the fall, the simplest way to put it is this letter is a letter to the church about the church. It teaches us who the church is and what it means to actually live out as the church. And that's precisely what we're going to continue to do today in our study of Ephesians chapter 4. Now, as I grow older in life, there's something that I've noticed. And that is that I commonly refer to my high school years more than any other uh, time period in my life. And maybe you're the same. Maybe if there's something that recalls to your memory of your past, it always revolves around your adolescent years, your time in high school. Um, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time uh, forgetting high school all the joys and the disappointments. Uh, The chronic embarrassment that some of us in this room felt during our high school years, some of us not so much maybe. Uh, The desperate struggle for popularity, uh, the the pressure from our parents, and probably above all else, the competition that high school creates, the social competition. There's nothing quite like it. The athletic competition that everyone in in this room who's an athlete, you probably had that injury that kept you from going pro, and I I can sympathize with you this morning. (laughs) Or the academic uh, pressure, right? To be valedictorian, to, to achieve at all costs. There's actually an entire genre of movies that revolves around these tensions of high school that we so, uh, so easily identify with. Now, I wasn't going to put all of them on there, but I'll probably put my favorite on here, and that's The Breakfast Club, which I think does a great job of really capturing the conflict and the angst of our teenage years. If you've never seen it, I'd encourage you to go watch it. Actually, I'm not going to condone, or con- I'm actually not going to say go watch it. It's not the best movie. Uh, but it does give an accurate portrayal of our years in high school and what that time period looks like. Now, why is it that we tend to talk about our adolescent years, particularly our high school years, with this phrase, well, those were the good old days, or or they're days of memories and days that we have meaning in life in some degree? Well, actually, a psychologist wrote an article uh, a few years ago called Why You Truly Never Leave High School. And I actually saw someone uh, repost this on Twitter this week, so it sparked my interest. And I went back and read this article, and the, the psychologist basically had a thesis, and his thesis was this that the social patterns that we develop in our teenage years tend to stay with us all throughout adulthood until we die. And in fact, he says, uh, from a scientific perspective, uh, when you think about when uh, when we're able to grasp memories the best in our brains, it actually comes to the ages of 15 and 25. And his, his point was simply this. He said, most adults still feel on the inside like we are somewhere between the ages of 15 and 18. Isn't that encouraging this morning, right? Maybe some of you felt that way at the House of Representatives this week. Um, (laughs) And he says the reason why we feel this way is because most of our life is devoted to posturing. What he means by that is our approach in adulthood is very similar to the things, the social cues that we learn in our teenage years. Posturing meaning that we'll do whatever it takes to get into a particular group of people that will think well of us a particular group of people that can advance us. In other words, we're good at hiding our real selves in order to avoid avoid rejection because we posture ourselves best in this world. And he actually says that this kind of mentality of never leaving high school actually includes religious communities as well. 
And he says in his article that, can people relate to this experience of exclusion or, as he says, uh, a mean girl style campaign by the in-group of a religious community from one time or another? He says, even religious people don't always do a good job of acknowledging our lifelong growing pains and insecurities that shape our identity. And his conclusion to the article was this. We are all in process, and the process has a lot to do with recognizing that there's an awkward teenager inside our cocoons. Now, the reason why I bring this article up today is because when we get to our text, we see a lot of conversation about children and maturing and what it looks like to grow up. And what God is going to do through his word today is he's going to create a pathway forward for us that can deal with that inner adolescence within all of us, that can deal with that inner teenager that never seems to really leave any of us. But what we have to come to a realization today is that all of us have that awkward teenager inside of us still. All of us have some maturing and growing up to do, spiritually speaking. All of us fall short of that, and all of us still have a work in progress in our hearts. And today, what we need to do as a church is to not only acknowledge that, but not condemn that, but see that Jesus actually desires that we would grow up in him as the church. And that really is our main idea today. That Jesus' desire for his church, as we see here in Ephesians, that we would grow up in him. That we would not stay stagnant in our high school years. That we would mature, we'd grow we'd be built up together as a united community in him. And today we're going to see three building blocks from the scriptures that Jesus provides for us to grow up. Three things that will help us and encourage us this morning as we think about this idea of how can we grow up, how can we mature as believers, how can we be built up into this community that God has called us to be. Number one, we're going to see that Jesus, he doesn't leave us empty-handed, but he actually gifts all of us. He gives gifts to all of his children, all of the believers. And number two, he's, we're going to see that he not only just gives us gifts as a, a way to provide for us to grow up, but he also gives us spiritually gifted leaders to equip us. And then finally, we'll see in our passage today that Jesus' people, his people, have the truth. And when we speak the truth, it allows us to grow up. It allows us to build up into something unique, something united, something mature. And so we're going to look at the text, and we're going to uh, flow straight through the text here, starting in verse 7, that he gives gifts to all. But grace, Paul writes, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, I I know it was a few weeks ago, but when Ben was was, uh, teaching on the first uh, six verses of Ephesians chapter 4, one of the, the themes there was really this great unity that we have in the church. Even though we're a unique group of people here today, we are united in Christ. God creates this unity. So we see this this repetitive theme of oneness in the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4. And here we see a shift in verse 7. From that oneness to this variety, to that oneness to this diversity, to that oneness to this uniqueness that each and every one of us are distinctly different. That there's something that we've been given that is unique. And he starts with the word grace here, that there's grace given to each one of us. Each individual who is a believer has received the grace of God. But then in verse 8, he says that he also gives gifts. 
He gives unique gifts to his people. Now there's something very, very just obvious here that we can't uh, just bypass that's so unique to the Christian faith and to the Christian church. And that is that God sees the beauty of unity through our differences. Through the fact that we are distinct this morning. Through the fact that he gifts us each differently. He, he gives us something unique about who we are in him. Each one of us, he says. And that is unique to the Christian faith because it's not like other man-made religions or even you may say cults or, or, or other regimes that would say things like you need to create sameness in order to have unity. You need to create uniformity in order to have unity. You need to all think and talk and act the very same way. There's no room for individuality. But the Christian faith says that's not true. Those type of organizations, those type of religious organizations, they may grow fast, but they're, they're, they're counterfeit to the Christian faith. Because the Christian faith emphasizes that the church actually produces a glorious variety, a tremendous diversity in its people. That there's something unique about you today that differs from the person right next to you. And Jesus himself says here through the scriptures that each one of us, each and every one of us, uniquely has received from him. Now, he pivots here as he talks about this idea that each and every one of us have received his grace, and, and then he, he begins to quote from Psalm 68. And again, it's a reminder that if each and every one of us have received his grace, and there is no personality type, there is no person in here that is too far gone to receive his grace, right? Each and every one of us, each type of person can receive the grace of God. And then he pivots to Psalm 68, verse 18, in a quotation here. And you might be thinking, well, that's kind of odd. It doesn't seem to fit. It's kind of confusing. And let's be honest, the first time I read this, I was confused too, right? It's a little confusing. It's a little daunting. What does he mean by all this ascending and descending? How does this have to do with Jesus gifting his church and giving gifts to his church? What is the connection here in the scriptures? Well, let's give a little context here. In ancient times, a king who was under attack, if, if his city was under attack, if his people was under attack, if an enemy was coming, the king would rally his troops and he would go to battle to fight his enemies. And if he won... He would deliver his people from captivity. He would return triumphantly. He would ascend to his throne. And then he would give the gifts of, of the, the treasure of the victory to the city, right? He would enrich the city with, with uh, whatever they gained through the war, to the conquests. And that's kind of the, the apparatus, if you will, that Psalm 68 is, is uh, referring to. And in Psalm 68, it's particularly referring to King David, who has come back from victory, Right? And, and he has ascended to the throne in Jerusalem. And, and, and ascending to Mount Zion was the tabernacle, the very presence of God. And the, the bounty, the, the treasure of the victory from this final exodus, from finally being led out of captivity by God, the true king, was the promise of the promised land, right? This land flowing with milk and honey. And so he's, he's reciting this psalm to remind us of this truth. But then Paul does something that we also do. When we hear the words of the Old Testament, we have to think, well, how does this teach us about Christ? We have to see it through the lens of Christ. And that's what Paul's doing here. And he's reminded through Psalm 68 that God was not done by leading his people out of the exodus of Egypt and ascending the tabernacle on Mount Zion. That there was a greater enemy to defeat than Egypt. And that enemy was sin and death. And there was going to be a greater presence given to us than that of the tabernacle. And there would be greater gifts given to us than that of the gifts that were won in battle. 
And how do we receive these things? Well, the text says it comes through Jesus Christ himself descending. His descension from heaven to earth. His descension from honor and glory to rejection and death and humiliation is the key to our understanding of this passage. Why? Because when he went to the cross, he defeated that ultimate enemy for us. When he went to the cross, he defeated the ultimate Egypt, the sin and death. He made a way for us to receive the forgiveness of sins in our lives so that the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit, could actually come inside of our lives because sin had been atoned for and the presence of God could come into our midst, not just in the tabernacle, that we would experience the ultimate spiritual gifts, the very presence of God within us, relationship with God. This is why Jesus descended. He lost everything. And this is why he alone has the authority to say that he gives grace. Because he is the one who provides the grace that we need this morning. And as we think about what is it like to see Jesus as the victorious king, the one who is now ascended above it all, is to remind ourselves this morning that in his descension, he has won the victory for us. And as he ascends into heaven, he lavishes his treasure on his church. He doesn't withhold gifts. The text says that he gives gifts. He pours out gifts to his people. In verse 10 it says, he who descended, meaning Jesus, is also the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now what does it mean that he might fill all things and why is this important for us to understand this morning? Well, as we think about spiritual gifts this morning, as we think about him giving gifts, one of the primary reasons we receive gifts in this life is because Jesus is bringing everything in this life under his lordship. When it says that he might fill all things, it's pointing to the fact that everything was built to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Everything was to be, he was to fill all things. And the problem with this world is that things are out of balance. Things are out of whack. They've gone astray. And the good news of the church is that we get to participate in God's healing and restorative work through Christ, bringing all things under his lordship. So even when we, when we use the giftings that God has given us, we are participating in that work. We are participating in that healing and restorative work that is bringing all things under his lordship. Now, when we think about spiritual gifts, and this, this text will, will continue in, in verse 11 talking about this, we, we see that there's spiritual gifts listed throughout the New Testament. We have lists in Romans 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, here in Ephesians 4, and then also in 1 Peter 4. And you'll notice that every single lift, list of, of spiritual gifts, they're all different, right? And, and there's a reason behind that. And that is when he says he gives gifts, he, it, the Bible doesn't give us an exhaustive list of gifts. It gives us a list that illustrate what it looks like that he gives gifts. They're illustrative, they're not exhaustive. In other words, they don't encapsulate every single spiritual gift that he gives to his people. But they do demonstrate a truth for us here and how we participate in the lordship of Jesus reigning in this world. And that is this, that there's no human need, physical, spiritual, psychological, or relational, that doesn't have some spiritual gift that can address it. You see, the beauty of how he gifts his church is not the particularities of, is it this gift or is this gift? The beauty is that he gifts the church, he spiritually gifts the church in such a way that there is no human need that is beyond those gifts. That means that there are some needs 
right? Spiritual gifts that heal us when we're wounded. There are some spiritual gifts that encourage us when we're downcast. There are spiritual gifts that challenge us when we are lagging or correct us when we've gone astray or love us when we're being rejected or inform us when we're ignorant. There is no human need that doesn't have some spiritual gifts that can address it. And so Jesus comes and he gives gifts to his people. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important for us to be reminded this morning that if you are in Christ, if you are part of his people, you have been gifted. Meaning that you are not to be passive and on the sidelines. There is no such thing as a Christian who is passive and on the sidelines. Because Jesus himself reminds us through his scriptures, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, that each and every one of us who have received the grace of God have been created for his good works. We are his workmanship. He has given you gifts. He has allowed you to be a part of his family. And that means that through your uniqueness, that each one of us in this room, through your uniqueness of who you are, of who God has created you to be, and how he has gifted you, there are people in this world that you are going to be best to reach because of how God has gifted you. And there are people, there are deeds in this world, there are things that we need to do as the church that you are going to be uniquely gifted to do best because God in his power through the Holy Spirit has gifted you to do those things. That means that none of us can be passive. None of us are called to be on the sidelines. All of us are in the game. Each and every one of us. Because God doesn't waste people. He gifts his people to participate in his mission to bring all things under his lordship. And so if we're thinking about what is it like for us to grow up as the church this morning, is to recognize that each and every one of us have been gifted by Jesus. He has lavished his gifts upon the church. Secondly, he gives spiritual leaders to equip all. So not only is he gifting the church, not only is he uh, throwing, uh, giving us these gifts, lavishing these gifts through his victory for us, but he also gives us spiritual leaders to equip all. Look at verse 11. And it says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we no, may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." So Christ, Jesus Christ, gives leaders, spiritually gifted leaders, to equip the church. Now that word equipped, or, or some translations even say perfect, uh, is a medical term. It essentially means the setting of bones, right? And when we look at the, the, the Bible, when it talks about the church, one of the, the greatest analogies it uses is the church is a body. And even here, Paul is referring to that. Now, I've never personally broken any bones. I'm just going to knock on one on that one because I don't know how I've made it through life without doing that. But, but I have dislocated my shoulder several times. And every time you dislocate something, right, a medical professional has to come and they have to reset it. They have to pop it back into its place. And that's really the, the role of leaders in the church. That God gives spiritual leaders to the church so they can set back in place. They can help equip. They can help the body properly function as it's supposed to. Now, who are these leaders in the text? Well, let's just kind of go through these one by one. He first says the apostles. Now, Paul's already referred to the apostles in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. He teaches us that as Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation of the church, it's, it's built on the foundation of who? 
the apostles, the prophets, right? The, the, the apostles in the Bible were, were, were men who were appointed by Christ in this very unique and we say unrepeatable group. They were personally chosen by Jesus, commissioned by Jesus. And the, and the, the reason why it's unrepeatable is, is number one, because to be an apostle was to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just through a vision, not just as we, we uh, believe through eyes of faith, but to, to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. And to be commissioned by Jesus. The reason why we say this position is unrepeatable in history is because the apostles carried the unadulterated, authoritative word of God. They spoke it. They spoke the revelation of God. The, they were the very mouthpiece of God in their time. That's why when we look at the scriptures, we see that even Paul himself, himself talks about how what they spoke were the scriptures to write these things down. And so after the apostles die, how does the church continue is they gather the, the apostolic teachings and that is the scriptures. That is our New Testament. And so where's the apostolic ministry continue today? It continues through God's word. As we study God's word, we are falling under the apostles their teaching, their ministry to our souls. But they also have the prophets here. And the prophets are also referred to in Ephesians 2.20. They are foundational with the apostles. They're, they're kind of like traveling preachers and teachers, and they would move about like the apostles to different people. And, and they, too, were, were speaking from the word of God. They were, they, were, they were speaking revelation from God. And they were going and they were teaching this. They were elaborating on it because it wasn't written down. They were, they were forth-telling truth about God. Now, again, their role was, uh, like the apostles, to be foundational for the church. But then we get to the evangelists. And the evangelists, very similar to the prophets, would travel around. And evangelists had, had a unique gift to, to speak to those outside of the faith. They had a unique way of, of speaking to those who did not know Christ. They were speakers. They were public speakers. They enhanced the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. And then we get to the final one, the pastors and teachers. Now, now our English translations say pastors and teachers, and it's good sometimes to denote the, the, the differences there, but in the, the original language, there is no definite article. So it reads more like pastors, teachers as one, which reminds us that every pastor is called to be a teacher, but not every teacher is necessarily a pastor, right? And so what are the pastors and the teachers called to do? Well, they're, they're the main equippers of ministry because they were the residents in the church, they didn't move around. They stayed with the local church. They stayed with the body to equip those who were in that particular church. That is what myself and Ben do as well. We are pastors and teachers. Now, before we get into the particulars of, of these different positions, I think here's, here's the main idea that Paul is driving home for us. and something we cannot miss. And something that I think oftentimes when we come to a passage like this, we do miss. That, that we are not to look at this passage and say, well, there are those who are the professional leaders of the church who do the ministry, and everyone else is just there. But to see instead that we are all in ministry. See, the point Paul is making there is that we are all active in ministry as the body, as the church, each and every one of us. And God in his grace and his wisdom ha has, has appointed leaders in the church to help equip not to do all the ministry, but help equip us to do ministry as the church. They're equippers of ministry. They're not the only doers of ministry. And so we cannot fall into a consumeristic mindset as King's Church to say that there are the professionals who do ministry and then everyone else. 
but instead to see that we're all called to be in the ministry, each and every one of us. Why? So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, if we want to grow up, if we want to grow up in our faith this morning, we can't have a Lone Ranger Christian mentality. We can't believe that we do it on our own. Paul says here that it's important that we are part of an equipping ministry, meaning that we're part of a body. It's important that we actually are under the, the, the leadership of, of others. It's important that we're attached to something greater than ourselves if we want to be equipped for the work of ministry. We can't just be isolated on our own. To do so, we'll be like children. And if you notice in the text, there's something very unique about this. Now, when he refers to children, he refers to, the, to, to, to plural here. That, that we would be like individuals being tossed to and fro. But when he refers to those maturing in Christ, he refers to the singular, that we grow up united together. You see, there's something about that that is important for us to hear this morning, that as children, if we isolate ourselves from one another, we can become like children. And children, if, if, if you uh, have ever been around children, uh, you, you know this to be true, right? The text says that they're carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness. In other words, they're not very discerning, right? Children are not good at discerning things. They don't know the difference between good food, bad food, and poisonous food, right? They just see food, and they're going to eat whatever you put in front of them. In the same way, he says that if, if we isolate ourselves, if we're, if we're not uh, a part of this equipping ministry of the church, then what we can actually do is harm ourselves because we, we won't have the discernment to understand what is good teaching, what is bad teaching, and what is harmful teaching. And he also says here that, that they're tossed to and fro. In other words, they're not very steady, right? And I'm just not talking about the equilibrium of a kid that falls down all the time. But they're not very steady in, in, in that their, their attention span just goes from one uh, moment to the next, right? Uh, a child has an attention span of about 10 seconds, and then they see something more shiny, and they go to that. Or they hear something more loud over here, and they go to that. In the same way, he says that if, we are, if we're not tethering ourselves to the equipping ministry of the church, if we're not a part of the family of God, then we can, fall, we can be careful to fall into the deceptive schemes of believing, oh, I'll make this change, but never following through. Not being steady, being tossed to and fro in our lives, and not feeling like we ever have any kind of solid foundation. But instead, he calls us to grow in unity, to grow up together as one. Now, just briefly, what's the takeaway for this for us today? Well, I think there's, there's two. Uh, number one, uh, we should be humble enough not to be shocked by the, the immaturity of other believers. Okay? <laughs> Somebody laughed at that. Humble enough not to be shocked at the immaturity, immaturity of other believers. What I mean by that is simply this. Guys, in, in a family, there's going to be babies. In any family, any church, there's going to be babies. Paul himself actually refers to himself uh, oftentimes as, as a, a baby in the faith. He refers to himself as, hey, I have immaturities that I'm struggling with. The reason we shouldn't be shocked at the fact that there's going to be immaturity present in the church is because we're not rescued by our immaturity. We're not redeemed by our maturity. We're not redeemed because we have it all together. We're redeemed by the grace of God. We need to have grace for the fact that there's going to be signs of immaturity. It's life. There's a big difference between someone who's a year old and someone who's 30 years old in life. And there's a big difference between someone who is, who is struggling with something in their life to being mature in Christ. And we have to offer grace to one another to see that growth happen, which leads to the second application. Don't be surprised by the maturity of others, but don't allow it in your own life. Don't put up with it in your own life. 
Don't settle for it in your own life, right? It's good to be a child. It's not good to stay a child, right? We don't want to stay as children. And God in his grace has provided a pathway for us to grow up as the church, to see if we want to have change in our lives, if we want to have better attitudes, better habits, we have flaws that we know that we all struggle with because we all fall short in this room. We shouldn't just say, well, that's just who I am and allow it to be, right? Because as the text reminds us from the very beginning, when grace is given to each one of us and Jesus himself tells us that he gives gifts to his church, it means that the very power of God is with you. There is no problem that you are struggling with right now that is bigger than that. There is no flaw in you right now that cannot be overcome by the power and presence of God in your life through his church. And so we don't want to stay that way. We want to grow up in Christ. And that leads us to our third point today, that as his people, that we speak truth to all. The last building block here that he gives us to how we can grow up as the church together, grow up together in this year, I realize that we've individually all received his grace and his giftings, not only seeing that we're collectively as a church uh, equipped by the, the leaders of the church and that we're coming together united as the church, but finally that we speak truth to one another. Verse 15, rather than being tossed in, uh, by like a child, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now Paul begins here and he says, we have to speak the truth. He doesn't say we're speaking a truth this morning. He says we're speaking the truth. That if we're to grow up, we have to understand that there are universal truths. <laughs> there are absolute truths in this world. Without that, we will be directionless Without that, we will be rudderless, just like a child who is being tossed to and fro. What he's talking about here is the importance of understanding doctrine, of understanding our belief as Christians. Now, I know that word doctrine, if you're not familiar with it, it can kind of be a loaded word this morning for us. And I think sometimes we confuse it with another word that's very similar to it, and that's the word doctrinaire. If you're not familiar with the word doctrinaire, doctrinaire is basically uh, the belief that we, we posture ourselves with superior truth. We are purveyors of truth. We have a higher knowledge, a higher spirituality than others. What the Bible calls this is a Pharisee. The Bible calls this a legalist. Not someone who uses knowledge to build up or to grow up others, but someone who uses knowledge to puff up. It's this type of person who comes in and hears a teaching from the Bible and says, I'm glad they heard it. Right? They needed to hear that today. It's not the type of person who builds up, but the type of person who puffs up. But doctrine, to be, to be doctrinal, to, to understand doctrine, is, is a heart posture that says that we want to lean in on the beauty and, and, and the, the glorious truth of the Bible. It means that we want to have a heart posture that sees and celebrates what is right and true and beautiful in this world. That's why we recite things like the Apostles' Creed every week is to remind us of these beautiful teachings of Scripture, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And speaking the truth is a catalyst for us growing up as the church. So Paul's suggestion here is that if we're not speaking the truth, if we're not leaning in on what the Bible says is true and the doctrine of the Bible, then we're going to go to another doctrine instead. There's going to be something else that we're going to follow. 
all of us have some doctrine that we are following in this life. All of us have some uh, worldview, basically is what we mean by that, some type of system of viewing the world, an overview of how things work that we're going to follow if it's not the Bible. In our culture today, uh, the two main, I would say the two main doctrinal beliefs come from the Enlightenment. And here they are. These are the two that I thought of that I believe our culture probably follows uh, most closely. Number one is the sovereignty of the individual. Basically what that means is what my truth is, is true, even if it contradicts what your truth is, right? Whatever I say individually is my truth is true, even if it contradicts what you say is true. And the second is the sovereignty of the majority. So if he says whatever the majority says is true, is true. Right? Which means that things like right and wrong, or truth and error, they're flexible. Right? Uh, they, they, can, they can go back and forth based off the consensus of whatever the particular majority of is that day. Now, I think it's important just for us to, to be obviously point out the flaw in this, that these things are wildly inconsistent. Right? It is wildly inconsistent to say that one truth can contradict another truth and still be truth. It's wildly contradictory to say, well, whatever the majority says is true is true, even if that majority uh, truth is different from another majority's truth. It's wildly inconsistent to directly uh, contradict one another. And and perhaps the best example of this is my my daughter, Harper, who every day she does this now, and it's just driving me insane, but one day we'll get through this. Every day she puts on her shoes on the wrong feet. (laughs) And every morning I have to tell her, Harper, they're all on the wrong feet. And she looks at me, she says, no, they're not. (sighs) My child, you're so hard-headed, right? Now, trying to get her to understand that there are just some objective truths in this world that are not subject to editing or debate or revision or sensory, right? Right foot is always going to be right. And left foot is always going to be left, But if we don't believe that there is the truth, if we don't believe there is absolute truth, then who is to say what is wrong or right in this world? How do we have any kind of basis for outrage in this world when we see things that are wrong? Who is to say that things like child molestation is wrong? Who is to say that things like genocide is wrong? Or that it's wrong to have a superior thought about one group or over another? Who is to say that we shouldn't adapt the eating of the weak and pushing out the weak for the strong? Who is to say that is wrong? You see, Paul begins here with the truth because it's important that we understand that if we're not anchoring ourselves in the truth, then we're going to anchor ourselves in another. But the the uniqueness of the Bible in, in its truthfulness for us this morning is the Bible is relevant because it doesn't care about being relevant, right? That's what's so great about the Bible. It doesn't care about being relevant, and that's what makes it so relevant because the Bible is not easily changed by different worldviews. It doesn't try to assimilate to different cultures or different worldviews. What the Bible does is it stands alone as the beauty of scriptures do, and, and what they can do is they can actually contradict what is not good in every worldview in every human community, and they can also affirm what is good in every worldview in every human community. They have the discerning power to affirm what is good and right in this world, and the discerning power also to see where are the flaws in the things that we believe. And that is why we say throughout history that once for all the scriptures were delivered. Each and every generation that comes before us, the Bible is able to speak into that culture and into that generation with the same authoritative truth. Not just for the church, but for the world. Now there's a final ingredient along with this truth that we have to understand today. And that truth in the, in the, the context of the Christian worldview is not truth if it's not associated with love. If we don't speak the truth in love, then it is not going to be the truth. 
It is a primary ingredient. The perfect balance of truth and love is how we as the church grow up in Christ. We can't say to one another, I know the truth, but I don't want to hurt you. Because if I say that, what I'm actually saying is that I, I don't want to help you grow up. Because as we've said before, and as, as we've said in different uh, passages of scripture, that, that we can't fully understand ourselves. We need an outside perspective. We need another vantage point to actually gain knowledge of who we are. And that is why God has made us a community. So that we can actually speak truth into one another's lives. But if we, if we say, I, I want to withhold that because I want to hurt you, then we're actually not allowing one another to grow up. But the opposite could be true as well. We can just be so blatant and abrasive with our truth that we have no ounce of love. We're cold, we're hard in the way we deliver it and actually draw people away from the truth. We can push people away from seeing the truth in their life. And so Paul is, is teaching us here that truth cannot accomplish being truth without love and love cannot accomplish being love without truth. They have to go together or else as the church, we won't grow. If they're not together, we will stay as infants being tossed to and fro. And here's the reality as we come to communion, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper this morning, here's the reality, guys. None of us in this room is capable of keeping those two things together perfectly. All of us struggle with truth and love. Each and every one of us struggle in one way or the other in our lives. And what do we need to do in our hearts when we find that struggle to be present? whether we're struggling to, to, to speak truth or struggling to be loving, is to look to Jesus. It's to look to the cross, because at the cross, we have the most amazing thing. At the cross, we're seeing the most amazing, hard truth to hear, that we're all lost, that we're all condemned. And yet, we see the most amazing act of love that Jesus is willing to die for us. Do you see how those things come together? In one sense, we see a hard truth that we have to bear in this life, that none of us can live this life on our own. None of us are good enough. All of us fall short. All of us are lost. All of us are condemned. So much so that it takes the death of God's own son to repair that. That's the hard truth. But the, the, the most loving message at the same time is to look to the cross and see that you're worth it. That Jesus went to the cross and he loved you that much that he would be willing to die for you. When those things come together, when we begin to see that, that our need is so great, it allows us to see the magnificent love of God. And when we see just how much God loves us, it's a, it allows us to see just how much we need him. And when those things come together, church, we're able to live out of the truth of the gospel, that we are all in need, and yet God loves us, and we are so loved, and yet we are so in need, it allows us to speak truth and love. It allows us to be the type of community that God has called us to be. One in whom we grow up in Christ in every way. One who we realize that even though we all have shortcomings, even though we all struggle with immaturity in our lives, we can collectively as the body be the people of God that he has called us to be. To grow up in him. To speak truth and love exactly the way we need to. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.